This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. All right. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to have Ryan Frederick on the show today. He is an entrepreneur, product guy, founder of AWH, a product consultancy based in Ohio, and author of the book, The Founder's Manual, a guidebook for becoming a successful entrepreneur. Ryan, how are you, man? Welcome to the show. I'm well. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm look, really looking forward to chatting with you. Uh, you know, the book is... Um, something that kind of resonates with me. You know, I've, I've been an entrepreneur and a founder of multiple companies and uh, I've seen a lot of other people try it and some succeed and some don't. And so it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, that you've kind of, you're, you're resonating on some of the same, same wavelengths there in terms of, uh, you know, you gotta be kind of crazy to start a company or to build a product and, and, and to do it the right way is really hard. So um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your journey and what you've seen and um, uh, you know, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I think that that much of the the you know journey of of entrepreneur and and you know product overlap, of course, because you can't in in most cases you know build a, a commercially viable and successful company without doing that on top of a successful great product. Um, you know, service firms you know are a little bit different, but um, I still think there's some you know common principles there too. Um, but, it, you know, very serendipitous for me, joined a startup when I was a young lad that, that you know, we didn't know was a startup. And, you know, we just looked at it as a small business that we were trying to make work. And, you know, we, we had some success and, and it sold, you know, after seven years and then identified a problem while there and the investors in that company, uh, I persuaded them to invest in, in the new thing. And, and they did. And we had a, some success there. And, um, and then, you know, it just sort of became, you know, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy from there, I guess. Uh, but what I will say is um, the, the um, advent of uh, past success does not equal future success in that right. inside of some successes uh, and in between, um, we also had some abject failures um, where we just ignored all the principles and all the fundamentals that made the other companies work and succeed. And those products uh, provide value for users. And in the, in the couple of abject failures, you know, we just thought we had the answers and, and we thought that we could, you know, hit a couple of easy buttons and take some shortcuts and in retrospect. And at the time you don't have that realization that that's what you're doing. It's not until you you get through it, then you look back and you realize, oh my goodness, look at all the mistakes that we made, even though we knew um, not to make those mistakes and not to do those things, we, we did them. And it just reinforced for me that, that the human nature part of all of this stuff is incredibly powerful. And if you're not consciously aware of overcoming those uh, the way we're innately wired around some of these things, um, those things will cause you to make um, significant missteps that often become fatal. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And you know, part of it, in, in my experience, and, and you've probably seen this too, part of it is just plain hubris, right? It's like we think we know better, and we think, oh well, you know, we can take that shortcut this time. 
but part of it is just recognizing our own biases and our own, our, the way that our brains work in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, their ego is a big part of it. And because, you know, we think they're the, we're the ones that identified the problem and, and are working on the solution that somehow that makes us, um, you know, the smartest person in the room around it. And, and it's actually, that's actually the worst case scenario for anybody building a product and trying to start a company. Um, If you're not the most humble person as part of the equation, um, you're probably not setting yourself up for, for success. Um, And you've got to put the problem, the product to the users and their best interest in front of yours at every stage of the evolution. Um, Because um, the, the reality is what you think and what you know pales massively in comparison to what everybody else thinks and, and believes around it. And sure, you've got to be grounded in some vision of what you want to accomplish and, you know, the culture that you want to facilitate and all of that. But especially really early on, you've got to be the least important person in the equation. Yeah, completely agree. So let's talk a little bit about um, something that came up in our previous conversations about why do bad products still get made? And we see this um, in big organizations. We see it in small organizations. We see bad ideas get greenlit and get funded. And then everyone kind of turns and looks at each other when it fails. They're like, well, what happened? So what have you seen as some kind of indicators or of uh, when something is going sideways or, or how to prevent things from going sideways in the first place? Yeah, I think it's multifaceted, uh, but there are some fundamentals um, inside of it uh, as well. One of them is is we are wired uh, as soon as we see a problem to want to solve the problem, which means we we end up often solving low-value problems and then in low-value ways. Mm. Um, So that's why, you know, we often get um, a lot lot of false positives in the early stages of, well, is this a problem? Yes. Okay, cool. It's, uh, we've validated it as a problem. Is this a problem we're solving? Yes. Okay. Let's start solving it. Do you like the way we're solving it? Mm, yeah, it seems okay. Cool. Now we validated that. And there's all this surface level validation that in the end won't stand the test of time. It won't stand the test of commercialization, right? So, um, w- w- you, you need deep problem um, understanding to what, what I call an expert level. I don't think in this environment you can build a, a solution that customers are going to value and want to use if you don't understand the problem, not only to their level, but I think beyond their level um, to what, what I would call an expert level. Um, Right. And, and you do that by talking to a lot of people who have that problem. Exactly. Right? That's how you get a, a more uh, complete, more rounded kind of three-dimensional view of the problem instead of just looking at it through, you know, the, the tiny little keyhole that is your own experience. Yeah. Or even, you know, that of a handful of potential customers and users, right? You might have to start right. there. And, and, then, and then the second thing that, that we often get wrong is the way that we do that validation, around the problem and, and, you know, our solution and our approach with customers. 
in that we go to those customers because now we sort of want to make this thing happen, right? And and now we've, we're, we've, we're invested with a little bit of time, a little bit mm-hmm. of energy, a little bit of emotion. So we want this thing to work. We want the hypothesis to be proven true that the problem exists and we're capable of solving it. So now we go to them and we ask uh, questions and we do validation in the positive and we ask customers things like, what do you like about our solution? And what do you like about our product? And how would it change your life? And how would it improve your life? And, you know, tell us why you would use it and tell us what you like about it. And, and all of that positive validation, uh, again, gives us a whole sense of, of false positives when we should be going to customers and users in the negative informing our validation in the negative and saying things like, tell me what you don't like about it. Tell me why you wouldn't use it. Tell me why this wouldn't change your existence, et cetera. Cause you get a whole different set of responses and validation that's actually useful versus the false positive validations that lead you down a, a primrose path that you think you're on the right track until you release the first version of the product to those customers and then they don't use it and they don't like it. And then you're turning to each other, you know, to your earlier comment saying they said they would use it. They said that the, the, they had a problem and they said that they valued the way we were approaching it. What the heck just happened? Right, right. Yeah, we, um, in our work, we coach people with certain types of phrases to ask people when they're doing their research about, you know, how to get at um, what that person truly feels without that person feeling judged for feeling that way. Right. And so we, we base a lot of our work on um, things that people do in cognitive therapy and, 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 you know, really understanding the psychology of decision-making. And so I'm curious what your expert, what your experience is with um, conducting customer interviews or um, uh, kind of synthesizing all that information together to make a better product decision. Do you have a framework around that or any kind of um, kind of rinse and repeat process that you like to use? Yeah, I'm a huge jobs to be done fan. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, and I'm a huge fan of that because I'm not a huge methodology fan fundamentally because I think methodologies often start out very pure and very, very well intended. And then because we're complicated as people and we're selfish and we have egos, we take really pure sound methodologies and we bastardize them over time. And then they just become crutches to our, you know, to our own flawed selves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I do, I, I, I like jobs to be done and I like it because jobs to be done forces you to focus on the problem. And then it for- forces you to focus on the user's existence right, their current existence around the problem, and then what a future state might look like, right, if, if their state would do, were to be altered, and if there were a different way to accomplish what they're accomplishing now. Right. And, and inside of that, and I, one of the other beauties that I like about it is when you're focused with a user on the problem and the process, and the way they conduct their work and the way they conduct, you know, an aspect of their lives, then it takes the personal aspect out of it. And so then it's not them trying to defend anything. It's not them trying to defend why they like something or don't like something, right? It makes it much more clinical, 
But inside of that, it gives them the freedom to then say, well, let me tell you about this aspect of the process that I'm not a huge fan of. Right. And then it starts to get a little personal without it being personal, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes, makes complete sense. Um, when you're doing this type of research, where, uh, like at what point do you see teams that you work with having that aha moment where like, Oh, right. Okay. Now we understand the way that we need to try to approach solving this. Is there a tipping point? Yeah, there often is. And, and that tipping point typically happens when um, a, a series, and I would say it's probably 10, at least um, after 10 sort of user validations, right? Research conversations where 10 people in a row sort of say the same thing. And, and then, you know, a, a client of ours, you know, will then have an epiphany of, oh, well, I, I, I guess there might be something there, right? And, and often that epiphany is attached to the users saying something that's contrary to what the, the product owner, right, believed or thought. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that's why jobs to be done in those, those user validation research, right, iter- in very iterative conversations are, are important. I'll give you a really quick example. So we were working with a, a large insurance company um, and we were helping them to create a couple of new products. And um, one of the, the products we were doing some research around and uh, we asked the uh, customers that were in the research uh, group to rank five product concepts based upon the research and work we had done with them already in the order of what they thought was going to give them um, the most value. And they did. And then we went back to them 48 hours later and we said of the same five concepts rank them in the order of the one that you would use, use the most tomorrow if it was available. And the order of those two rankings flipped entirely. Yep. And, and it was because the ones that they thought pro- would provide the most value were far out of reach and were impractical and were probably never going to be done, where the ones that they ranked as saying, yeah, I would use this if it was available tomorrow were the ones that seemed to maybe provide less value, but they believed were a, a little bit more deliverable and realistic and, and maybe were more aligned with working into their process faster and easier. And right. so that's when you're doing research and validation where you can get very mixed signals from a group of users that you've now got to go make sense of. And we went back to the users and we validated those those findings. And they said, yeah, I mean, this one that I ranked, you know, highest in value is kind of a moonshot, but it would give me the most value. But in terms of ranking it, of which is going to make a difference in my world tomorrow, that one's last because it is a moonshot. Right. It doesn't seem. And you've got to balance those, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So you get through this process, you've got uh, a better understanding of how to go about solving this problem. 
Um, how do you then take that back to the executive stakeholders and communicate that, hey, we're going to do something that's a bit different, or we're, we're seeing that we need to do something different from what you thought when we started this project? How do you then convey to them the importance of the new, of the new tact, you know, the new direction, and convince them that it's worth funding? Yeah, that's when you really become therapist, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because... There's, there's almost, you know, nothing more um, jarring to, you know, an, an executive than, hey, the path that we were on doesn't really look like the path that is going to continue to make sense. And not only do we need to go on a new path, but the new path that we need to go on doesn't even exist yet. So we've got to start blazing a trail. Right, um, which is risky which is risky and very un unnerving for, you know, executives uh, because most of them, even who are in innovation um, aren't really um, explorers, right. As much as they are leveragers of new, new technologies, right. But they're not, Hey, let's go over here and, and just, you know, go into unders undiscovered territory and completely blaze a new trail. And so, one of the things that we have found that, you know, that, that, that works is, and I don't know, and maybe this is just part of, of our culture and personality as a firm is, you know, to be, to be super blunt and direct. Um, and in, in the case, even with the, the insurance company that we were working with, uh, we just said to them, look, if you continue down this path, right. The, the, the likelihood of that product succeeding is almost zero. If we go down this path, which still has a lot of uncertainty associated to it and a lot of unknowns and a lot of iteration or a lot of experiments inside of it, there's a chance that it actually can work. So you've got a chance of zero over here and you've got a chance of something, we might be able to figure out something to work over here. Do you on, you know, on your record, want to have to pursue a product that we now know has zero chance of succeeding versus going and spending time experimenting and exploring that might produce something, you know, that then is valid and sound or also might end up being a zero, but you learned a lot along the way. And so we just sort of put it out there to say, Hey, you could have this on your record, or you could have this scenario on your record, which scenario would you rather be attached to? Yeah, we do something similar. We think about it in terms of, you know, like kind of a likelihood of, of some form of success, right? So do you want to do something that we know is not going to work? Or do we want to do something that has at least a chance of working? And if not, will put us closer to something that will work. Yeah. And then you've got to, and, and, and you've probably experienced this too, then you've got to sort of talk. And that's why I started this out by saying, you know, you sort of turn into a therapist because then you've got to sort of start walking them through the ramifications of those, you know, scenarios. Right. And then, you know, oftentimes what, you know, a client will say is, well, what's the likelihood if we go down this other path of it succeeding and you have to be honest with them and say, look, we have absolutely no idea, but we do know that there's at least a, a an opportunity over here where there's no opportunity over there. Um, right. And then you've got to sort of talk through, you know, what are the ramifications of that and what's the meaning of that? And then, 
um, you know, and how long will it take and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And then you just get into very micro conversations, right, inside of the macro um, kind of decision. And then it's those micro conversations that ultimately get them comfortable with saying, you know what, if, if this thing has no chance of working and this thing at least has an opportunity at some point to turn into something that might work, let's invest some more time and energy over here and see if we can begin to figure out and piece together what we might need to now know over here to get to some, you know, some, you know, success likelihood and, and ratio to figure out whether we want to continue to pursue it or not. But it's really those micro conversations that get them comfortable with saying, all right, let's abandon the path that we were on because I agree that it's, that's not going to go anywhere and get comfortable with the fact that they're now going to go into exploration mode. Right. Right. Do you find any of the, I guess, more kind of classic or traditional business tools like a SWOT analysis, do you find tools like that to be useful in helping uh, to, to understand and communicate what a good product decision might be? Sometimes. Um, but, but I think that, that those have been around for so long th- that sometimes th- they're, they fall on deaf ears um, because people have seen them associated to products that and initiatives that moved forward and that failed and weren't, and weren't great. Uh, but the SWOT analysis, if you go back and look, look at it, indicates, you know, all systems are go, move forward. And, and so I think all of those tools are, um, you know, can be flawed if they're not used properly and in, in, if the right information is in input, right? Because a lot of SWOT analysis over time, if you go back and look at them around failed initiatives and products, they, they weren't honest, right? The SWOT analysis was crafted in a way to help the project move forward because that's what everybody wanted, even though they saw huge red flags and then the SWOT analysis were, were created. So those kinds of legacy tools often, you know, are, are used, you know, with an agenda in mind and a purpose in mind. Um, so we will typically not use those and we'll, we'll have different ways of sort of displaying, you know, the information and the research in, in, in almost individualistic kind of a way for an individual product and, and client so that, that it, it's, it, it, it encourages thought and analysis versus be delivering it in a package that everybody has seen before that, yes, is easily digestible, but also uh, the delivering of that common package then takes some analysis and thought out of the equation. And I'm not sure that, that I articulated that as well as I want to, but hopefully the point comes across. <laughs> yeah, I think I got it. So um, we, we, what we see is we, we try to speak the language of the people that we're speaking to, right? And any tool is only as good as the person using the tool. And so one of the things that we try to make sure that, um, that, that we're aware of and that we are making all the people who are on the team aware of is this motivated reasoning, right? And you alluded to this a little bit earlier when you talked about, you know, people go out and ask questions about their product that confirm their own biases. And so what we want to try to do is make sure that any analysis and any research that we do 
um, is not falling into that confirmation trap, but you know, trying to yield uh, and use the term clinical er- earlier, um, trying to yield the most precise clinical results so we can make a decision based on um, what is the most truthful way forward, right? And so um, thinking about which tools we use is always interesting because I think you brought up a good point about how legacy tools sometimes don't get the level of attention that a, a new way of presenting things might get that, um, and don't get that same level of analysis and, uh, and, and thought. Yeah. Cause I think the, I think the packaging sometimes <clears throat> is, is, you know, it, it can either be a positive or negative, but I think oftentimes with legacy tools and packaging, it becomes a negative uh, yeah. And and so we often where we often end up is with some sort of a matrix, right? Where we're we're now presenting to the client, you know, good, better, you know, best sort of scenarios and options and results, and it becomes this matrix that's really thought provoking, and that ultimately gets them to hone in on, you know, the the real substance versus getting lost in you know areas that that aren't as important and those aren't meaningful for their consideration. And based upon what you said, it sounds like you guys do something very similar. Yeah. So let's talk to the uh, product executive in a big company who's been given a task to uh, update a product or make a product better, or maybe bring something new to market. And, you know, they, they've gone through some of the stuff that we've already talked about. They're, they're confident in the research. They're confident in what the product should be. Now they've got to get the teams motivated to build it and make sure that they're building it in the right way. Right. This is a, and I think this is something you address pretty directly in the product flow section of your book about, you know, how do we make sure that we stay on the right track and what are some signs that things might be going sideways? Yeah, I think the um, most, most important thing that, that I've experienced and, and done is, um, product needs to be as simple and elegant at every stage of the product. Um, So, you know, there are so many cliches and terms out there now and labels, right? There's fail fast. And there's, if you're not embarrassed by your first product, then you, you know, then you've done something wrong. And, yeah, you can ship it soon enough, right? <laughs> right. And, you know, yeah. all of those things. And there's, and there's truth to all of them. That's why they've become, you know, memes and cliches and they're on coffee mugs. Um, right. But, you know, there, there's, there's also um, a lack of context, right? In, inside of all those things. Um, and, and, and so I care less about labels and, and those cliches than just staying grounded in the fact that every version of the product from the perspective of if a user is um, using version one of the product. And it, so whether you call it an alpha, a beta, an MVP, it's version one of the product if a user is 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 going to be using the product. And from version one on, the product should be as simple and elegant as possible, which means the quality of what's on the cutting room fo- floor and what you left out of that version of the product, to me, represents the quality of the product and probably the usability and value of the product. Mm-hmm. Because if your cutting room floor 
isn't of quality and isn't of substantial volume. And most of that stuff ended up in the product. The product is probably overbuilt and it's probably overcomplicated. Um, yeah, yeah. And I just think that, that if you keep in the back of your mind, simple and elegant at every stage, then that, that forces you to question every feature, every functionality and every bit of the product to say, does it add value? Does it need to be here? Does it need to be in this version? And I would say 80% of the time, the answer is no. And, and that's hard because we're wired to be builders and we're wired right, to make the products bigger and to make the products presumably better, but better doesn't equal big in products. Often taking something that's complex and making it simple and in only leveraging 20% to accomplish it versus 80% means the product is actually going to be better and more valuable for users. Yeah. So we think about that the, the way that I phrase it is what is the minimum delightful product? What is the smallest thing we can deliver that's going to help someone accomplish the task and, and help them feel better about doing it. And so, so one of the questions we ask is um, what, what is the smallest thing we can build that will give us a, a measurable outcome that will give us the confidence to build more, to continue building, right? What is the smallest possible thing we can deliver? And that's a hard question to answer. It is. Yeah. Well, because, because we're, and, and, and I write about this because there's a, there's a chapter in the book about this. Um, complexity bias is a real thing. We are wired as humans to, to not believe that you can solve a complex, complex problem simply Um, because we we're wired to believe that if it's a complex problem, then it it can only be solved through a complex solution. And then what we're predetermined to do then is to solve it in a very complicated way. Right. Um, And, and that's not really the case, but you just have to work to overcome that. So to get to something that's, that's, really small and and that is really tight is incredibly challenging because we're not we're just not fundamentally not even wired that way right exactly good stuff um you know we're running a little bit short on time so i want to be respectful of of uh, everyone's time (laughs) listeners and us here recording today so um you know, your book, I think was um, an interesting read to say the least, you know, it's got a lot of parallels with the way that we think about stuff. Um, It's available on Amazon. What else have you got coming up that you want people to pay attention to that people should know about? Yeah, I've actually got uh, another book coming out in January and it's uh, around growing and managing a services firm. Um, I see um, lots of services firms, um, struggle to grow and, and stagnate and, you know, running a services firm is a very different experience than running a product company. And, and um, so hopefully there's some, you know, um, tips in there and help for people that are trying to run and grow successful services firms to, to do so. So that'll be coming out in, in January. And then um, um, yeah, if anybody wants to get in touch and, and talk about um, building products and starting companies and, and the journeys associated to either of those things, then um, look me up at um, the AWH site is awh.net. And then my personal page is ryanfrederick.biz. 
Awesome. So we'll link all that stuff up in the show notes too. Uh, Ryan, this has been a great conversation. It was not nearly long enough. I'd love to continue talking about this stuff. So maybe we'll do it again another time, but we're going to go ahead and call it quits for today. Thanks again. Um, as I said, pleasure to speak with you and uh, I wish you all the best. Enjoy your cabin. <laughs> all right. You too, man. <laughs> I appreciate it. Soon. Thanks, man. <laughs> Bye. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said, Good design is good business.